Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, I am joined in the studio by Commander Ron Ladd, United States Navy retired. Mr. Ladd was born in 1950 in Murray County, Tennessee. He attended Rice University on a Navy ROTC scholarship, where he got his feet wet, so to speak, taking part in naval operations during his summer breaks. Mr. Ladd earned a bachelor's degree in mathematics and electrical engineering in 1972 and a master's of electrical engineering in 1973. Mr. Ladd was commissioned as a naval officer and worked in Washington, D.C. for the father of the nuclear Navy, Admiral Hyman Rickover, on his technical staff at Naval Reactors. He transitioned into the submarine service where he was assigned to various departments on attack subs before being assigned to ballistic missile submarines. He was executive officer of the USS Francis Scott Key before he was given command of USS John C. Calhoun. Following his sea duty, he worked for a time on the Navy's Tomahawk missile program before retiring from the Navy, where for the next 21 years, Mr. Ladd worked for Raytheon working on the design, development, testing, deployment, and support of the Navy's Cooperative Engagement Capability Program. Mr. Ron Ladd, welcome to History's Hook. Glad to be here. I always like to start off with a tougher question. This is usually the toughest question of the day. Historically, the American military has been based on and driven by technological innovation. You are certainly at the forefront of some of that innovation during your time in the Navy. What do you see as the most important technological innovation in the history of naval warfare? Uh, Naval warfare for the United States since the turn of the century back in 1900 with the Great White Fleet has been based on projecting America's uh, ability to influence the world abroad and making sure that Fortress America is protected by the oceans. And in that, uh, I suspect the biggest change in that time frame was actually naval aviation because that allowed us to basically take airfields anywhere we want to in the world that's close enough to the ocean, which is almost all of the areas that any we care about. And we're able to, America is able to make sure that we can influence foreign policy, a lot of times by not ever fighting, just by being able to place those things. Um, which is a chief tenant of Cold War strategy of which you were yes. certainly an, an important part. And I was going to say, the uh, since the advent of nuclear power came along and that was applied to submarines, submarines have been able to also be an influence because you don't know if they're there or not. And the fact that they could be has always been a influence to the uh, way events will happen. And sometimes... Uh, in the past few years, we've even surfaced submarines just to let somebody know that they are there. 
right. and that they have to take that into account in the way things are developing in the world. Right. You were born and raised in Murray County, Tennessee, on a farm far from the oceans of the world. Uh, what did you learn on the farm in rural Tennessee that was useful to you in your military career? Um, I think perseverance. Um, you have to make do with what you've got. And if you think about being on a submarine and you're out at sea, you have to make do with what's there because you can't get anything else. And you have to make what you have work to get the job done. Just like on a farm, you have to do that all the time to make, get, make your equipment, keep it working with what you've got because you don't have time. You don't have time to really go out and get what you need to do because you've got stuff you've got to get done here and now. So right. Right. I think that uh, persistence and that ability to make do with what you got, learn that on a farm. Absolutely. Tell, <clears throat> tell me about your family. Uh, what did your parents do? How many siblings did you have? Um, my father grew up there on a family farm and the same farm that I ended up growing up on. And he was uh, graduated from Santa Fe School at 16 and did a couple of years of engineering at the University of Tennessee before World War II came along. And he was in World War II, and then he came back uh, to the farm and farmed, and then he was also uh, able to get a job as a rural mail carrier to huh. supplement the uh, farm income. My mother grew up in South Carolina, and he met my father when he was over in South Carolina um, as part of the preparations leading up to World War II. And she was a English teacher and uh, commercial courses teacher at uh, Santa Fe and at Columbia Central. And a lot of the people that are around here I've known that have uh, had her as a teacher. Um, so they ended up, uh, my mother being an English teacher, we did an awful lot of reading at home, growing up doing a lot of reading. And my father had studied engineering and we were doing surveying and a lot of other things related to mathematics. So I tended to get uh, both of those influences, which really were helpful academically later on in life from them. Yeah, so education was held at a premium in your household, is a fair statement to say. Uh, yes, it's my <laughs> mother was a teacher, and uh, it was uh, looked as a way. My dad always said that uh, make sure that you uh, do well in school, otherwise you'll end up being here farming. And <laughs> I had a good friend of mine who was also in the Navy, and that, he was motivated. He had dropped out of college for a year and worked, and then he came back to uh, here. And uh, from he took a vacation in Florida and worked down there for about six months. And then he came back here, and he ended up uh, working on the farm and deciding, hmm, school was really a whole lot easier than this. Ah. I'm going to go back to college. <laughs> uh, so your father was a veteran of World War II. Did, were you thinking about a military career even when you were in school? Um, I was, uh, when I was growing up, I was thinking about a military career, um, uh, especially the ROTC scholarship, because that was going to be a way to pay for college. Okay. And uh, I was always looking at uh, that route as a, as a way to go to college. Sure, sure. You attended Columbia Central High School, graduating in 1968. Uh, prior to graduation, you attended a National Science Foundation-sponsored program at Austin Peay State University studying advanced mathematics. Uh, what were your academic plans leading toward college? Obviously, uh, you've established that uh, education was important in your family. Your father sort of the math side, your mother sort of the English side. How did you, wh what was your path as you were thinking about college? 
Well, that uh, I think that Austin P uh, summer program was sponsored by the National Science Foundation, and that was really, I think, a one of the long-term consequences of Sputnik and the emphasis on STEM education that came out of that. They wanted to get people that were interested in science and mathematics to uh, get them exposed to some uh, more advanced things. And so that was really very uh, helpful to me. Uh, I did really well at that, and I was encouraged uh, talking to the university professors. There are instructors. And so I said, well, that, I have some talent in that, and I'll probably end up studying mathematics when I go to college. Mm. So that, that really motivated me. And Columbia Central prepared you enough to be able to go to Rice University uh, on an ROTC scholarship. Uh, Talk about a little bit about Columbia Central at that point in time. We had some really uh, good teachers that uh, were very demanding and made us work. Um, We had uh, classes that we tended to – they tended to put people in classes that – trying to think of the word. Uh, They basically put all of the people that had some ability in English all in one English class. And so we had 25 or 30 of us that were good in English. And then the people that took chemistry and physics, and they had an advanced math class that uh, we had the people that were good in math. And so they were able to teach and take us further, I think. And that was really very beneficial. Uh, but I think the teachers were the ones that really prepared. Uh, one other thing I did was my uh, parents got me to work with the uh, advanced math high, uh, advanced math teacher at the high school at the time, Ms. Dooley. And so I basically went in an hour early every uh, day and studied calculus, which was not an offered course at that time, huh. and that also helped me study. Uh, my mother would go in, she was teaching typing and other things, and a lot of students needed extra practice on typing. They didn't have typewriters at home. So we were, and I rode to school with my mother since she was teaching there. Sure. So uh, she was always there at 7 a.m. to open up the typing room so the students could, her students could come in and get extra practice at typing and doing the thing. So I was there already at 7, and the math teacher would come in early to, so she would be able to teach the calculus. That's amazing. Uh, you settled on Rice University. How did you choose Rice, of all places, to go? It, when my children were uh, applying to college, I really realized how much college application process had changed from the 1960s to the 19, to the 2000s. And um, when you looked at going to college, a lot of people didn't go out of state. Uh, there wasn't that much information. There was obviously no Internet. You could read college uh, catalogs, but that catalog was really more of a list of the courses they offered than what was it going to be like going to that school. Nobody took trips to go visit a college. Um, I do remember the University of Tennessee did some did send some students out on a kind of a recruiting trip to get people to apply, but people didn't go to the school to go visit like they do now. So basically. There were, at that time, I said, well, I want to write a ROTC scholarship. I want to study engineering. I want to stay in the South. And I looked at the 55 schools that had ROTC scholarships, looked at the ones at the South, uh, applied to Auburn, Georgia Tech, and Rice. Those were the 
better engineering schools that were in the South at the time. And I applied to those three and got all ex- got accepted to all of them. And Rice seemed to be a little bit, it was a smaller uh, institution and it's got a little more uh, interaction with the professors. And that was about, that was like in a paragraph or two that I read. Right, right. And that was about as much as I said, well, I'll go to Houston. <laughs> <laughs> it's good marketing on their part. Well, at that point, it was more... Uh, it's a smaller school. It's in the South. It's got a good engineering reputation, what little you could ascertain at that time in the 60s. And so I went. I, I did notice, I think, one thing I've noticed from my children to myself. I think a lot more people transferred college after they went to some place and said, oh, this isn't working out. Whereas now I think that happens a lot less because there's a lot more communication and people have a lot better, the students have a lot better understanding of the school they're going into. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, What did you study at Rice? What kind of engineering? Uh, Well, I started out in uh, theoretical mathematics and that was uh, good. And then I looked around and I said, hmm, seems like the engineers are getting a lot more job offers. And so I I literally went over to the bookstore in the beginning of my sophomore year and looked at the textbooks for the various engineerings. And I said, oh, electrical engineering is a lot more mathematical than the others. And so that's why I decided to to get a double major in electrical engineering, um, which required me to take more courses. And I was taking an overload sometimes, but was able to finish both degrees. And then... um, as it turned out, the electrical engineering was a little more valuable than the mathematics because I ended up uh, – what I wanted to do was to go to graduate school in mathematics, but the Navy didn't give me a leave of absence to do that. So the engineering was became a lot more valuable than when I was in the Navy. You went on a Navy ROTC scholarship to Rice – so you knew you were going to have to do some time, I assume, in the in the Navy following graduation. But what was your long-term plan? As you're taking math and you're taking electrical engineering, were you thinking of a career in the Navy or were you thinking this is going to be useful to me in the private sector as well? I don't or think instead? at 18 I was going to, thinking too far ahead. Okay. I think maybe during college I thought eh, maybe an academic uh, mathematics might be okay, would be a useful thing to do. Uh, but then – I had the Navy commitment at that point in time. So then once I got into the Navy, I got more more in engineering and then never did have the desire to come back. During the summers, as an ROTC scholar, you had a chance to serve on a couple of naval vessels. Uh, USS Wasp, uh, I think, was the first one that you uh, uh, were aboard. Uh, Talk to me about your first trip uh, with the Navy. What, what What was that like for you? So uh, when you say USS Wasp, there is currently another USS Wasp. This was the USS Wasp that was a World War II carrier right, that right, was right. Built, toward, built toward the end of the war. And they changed it into, a, they called it a support carrier. And it uh, basically couldn't do jets because it was World War II vintage. So it did uh, ASW aircraft that were propeller driven at that time. And it was... ASW being uh, anti-submarine warfare, yes, right? Yeah. Okay. And so uh, this was in 19, the summer of 1969. And if you remember, during that time frame, there was an awful lot of anti-Vietnam War protests and Columbia was shut down, Columbia University in New York City was shut down and so forth. So there was a lot of uh, emphasis in saying, hmm, we need to take these midshipmen uh, 
as they called uh, the, the Naval Academy and the ROTC people that are going out to these summer cruises to ships. We need to give some of them some really good uh, cruises there so that they keep their morale up and uh, decide not to quit and so forth. So they had a cruise that was, they flew us over to Germany and uh, then flew us up to Oslo and we had leave uh, Liberty in Oslo, Norway. And then w where the ship was at that time, uh, making a port visit, we did that for about a week. And then we went out to sea and did in a submarine ops and so forth. But they had those cruises and they uh, gave the cruises out based on your rank in your uh, university. And so I was at the top, so I got the nice, the nicest cruise. And some of the others had to take uh, ships out of other places uh, that were not near as nice to go visit. Right, right. Uh, USS Wasp uh, was a decorated ship, as you said, went into World War II late in the war. Eight battle stars uh, there, an illustrious career with operations in both the Pacific and the Atlantic, uh, hosted uh, dignitaries from time to time. It must have been pretty exciting for a young kid to be on a ship with a history like that. Well, the, the history of it probably didn't, uh, I didn't really experience all of that. It was really kind of exciting because it was my first look at the Navy and an aircraft carrier is a really large ship with a large uh, number of people on board, probably with the air wing. Currently, the current uh, attack carriers that we have are about 5,000. We probably had three or 4,000 sailors on something that's probably 800 feet long, which is right. somewhat small space. It was a really uh, eye-opening experience for me. I bet it was. Uh, the The second cruise that you took was on <coughs> USS Grayback, uh, which was, uh, uh, explain what that was a submarine, yes? Yes, it was. It was a diesel boat submarine that was built in the 19, late 1950s, and it was built as to carry the Halibut cruise missile, which was a nuclear cruise missile. It was sort of the predecessor of the uh, submarine ballistic missile things. It was sort of a stopgap uh, missile system. And once the uh, Polaris missile subs came along, they were outdated and this one got converted into a uh, ship because of they had these, this big space. They put in the ability to lock out divers and swimmers, and they did all kinds of special operations. And they, uh, because the diesel boat isn't that fast, and they forward deployed it into the Philippines and home ported it in Subic Bay, uh, which was a big naval base there in the Philippines at the time. Of course, that was the, during the Vietnam War and so forth. Uh, so... That was also a big eye-opening and very interesting experience uh, to be in a foreign country and uh, see submarines and travel. And it was, was a very— uh, It's sort of on opposite ends of the spectrum, going from an aircraft carrier, the largest of the ships, to a submarine, the smallest of the, the ships uh, out there. Did you have a preference? Did... Oh, definitely. The, uh, the aircraft carrier, you were— it was just so big and so large. The submarine, uh, it would have uh, current submarines, uh, the ballistic missile submarines have about 150, 155 crew on board, and the attack subs will go to sea with about 80 or 90. You can know everybody and you know everything about them and so forth. And that intimacy and the ability to know people 
and the quality of people that you get uh, really made me a preference for submarines. And huh. so, uh, yeah, seeing both ends of that spectrum really made me decide that submarines was really a better place for me. Summer. Also, also, I'm not really good on heights and flying. Okay. All right. Uh, so it's exactly the opposite of that, where you're going underneath the surface of the water instead. Uh, submarines are not for everybody. Uh, there are a lot of folks that deal with claustrophobic issues and that kind of thing that didn't bother you at all on an old diesel boat like that. Um from our perspective, the diesel boat was much more like you're just in a small office building. Okay. That's kind of got things tight and uh, packed together, and you can't see outside. But other than that, it, it, it really feels a, a lot like you're being inside. I think people are claustrophobic when things are really right on top of them. I think people get go on submarines, and they think, man, this is really crowded. And they may think... Yeah, they don't have any problem coming in for an hour or two or three or a day. They may think, well, I don't know if I could do this for two months or three months at a time. <laughs> but uh, there are places on a submarine where people get claustrophobic, and even the submariners sometimes get claustrophobic when they have to really get up in behind places and try to clean things or find things or do maintenance on things. And I've uh, even people that have been on the subs for years and say, They'll have a story about a time or other. They really just felt, oh, this is too tight. I need to back out. Right, right. We need to take our first break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get into Mr. Ladd's career in the United States Navy. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. When you think of diamonds, what do you think of? Rare, precious, timeless, sparkles like the sun. They're timeless and nothing like them on earth. Then do you think, where do I buy local to buy the perfect ring? Maybe a diamond pendant or earrings or maybe a new diamond band. Look no further. Tillis Jewelry carries all your diamond and jewelry needs. Stop by and see our wonderful collection. And remember, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jeweler. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644.
This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm Tom Price. Today, I am joined in the studio by Mr. Ron Ladd, who had a rather illustrious career in the United States Navy, uh, at the pinnacle of which he was the commander of the USS John C. Calhoun, a ballistic missile submarine in the United States Navy. When we left off, uh, Mr. Ladd, you were just finishing up your collegiate career at Rice University. Uh, you graduated uh, with high honors from that institution, and you were commissioned into the Navy immediately. What was your first assignment? I worked for uh, on Admiral Rickover's technical staff, uh, the Division of Naval Reactors that was part of the Naval Sea Systems Command and also part of what was then the Atomic Energy Commission. The, he was responsible for designing and developing and uh, the operations of all of the nuclear reactors in the Navy. He's the father of the nuclear Navy, uh, an incredibly important person in the history of the United States military. Uh, uh, he had 63 years of active duty service, making him the longest serving naval officer, as well as the longest serving member of the United States Armed Forces in history. He was also known for his work ethic uh, throughout his career and often for pushing his people extremely hard. Uh, what did you know of Admiral Rickover? Um, he was a really interesting uh, person to work for. Uh, nobody worked with him. You worked for him. Mm. Uh, he really didn't care about a lot of the uh, intricacies of military etiquette and procedure. He just focused on getting the job done. Mm. He uh, had a history of having uh, people with higher rank working for people with lower rank that had more knowledge and more ability. Um, he, we didn't wear military uniforms. Really? We wore uh, civilian clothes, and uh, my hair was probably longest when I was uh, working on his staff. Interesting. Uh, he um, demanded a lot out of people, and I think uh, one of the things that he that emphasizes this was all of the uh, enlisted sailors and the officers went to nuclear power school where they really learned all of the uh, engineering and mathematics they would need in understanding what they were doing with the nuclear reactors. And the sign over the school said uh, something like, even the smartest was, must work as hard as those who struggled to just get by. And he thought he knew that somewhere along the way, everybody was going to have to get to the point where they were going to have to work as hard as they could and use everything that they had. And if they couldn't do that, if they were used to just being smart and getting by on being smart and didn't have a worth ethic, that somewhere along the way, something was going to break down. And so he pushed people, even the smartest ones, as hard as he could. And um, President Carter, who had gone through that, really thought that uh, his work for Admiral Rickover and Admiral Rickover's push to make him 
do as much as he could was really instrumental in his later life and being able to accomplish you know, all the things that he did. He, he demanded excellence uh, really throughout his, his career. Um, uh, what a great way to start your career in the Navy to, to work for a man like that. Well, it was really different. Uh, he he was a graduate of the Naval Academy, but he thought that the Naval Academy didn't focus enough on the technical aspects of things. And so he picked people to be on his staff that were from good engineering programs uh, in ROTC. And he was also able to get people that were going through officer candidate school from good engineering schools. And then the ones that uh, did well and wanted to stick around they would stick around as civilians uh, and work in the civil service in his office, which I had the opportunity to do, but I had decided that I wanted to go back to submarines and be on submarines and do the operational side of things. What What was the thought process with that? What, what prompted you to want to go into submarines? Uh, I think working with the people, the people are all well qualified. You, um, in submarines, you're inside all the time. You're working with people. You're intimate with people. The uh, the details of military etiquette you just dispense with because they're not any use to you when you're all on the same ship the whole time. And there are people that you know because when you go to sea with people and work with them, you get to know them very well. Uh, you probably know in aspects of them that maybe even their spouses and their family don't know. Um, Is that unique to the submarine service? Probably not. I think that's probably true of all about the military. I think the fact that uh, you are living and working and seeing everybody every day makes that a little more intimate on the submarines than you would on larger surface ships or even in the Air Force or the uh, Army. the, The military still has that unit cohesion all the way around. I think it's just up to another level of the submarine because of the nature of the submarine. There are a couple of things with the submarine service that intrigue me. One is, uh, both allude to what you're talking about. One is that um, because it's such a small crew operating an incredibly technical vessel, everybody's got a key role to play. Everybody's job is important, maybe more so on a submarine than any other uh, naval vessel out there. Um, the other thing is, I think on average, a submariner is of a higher caliber ca- caliber of intelligence as well. Submariners are pretty smart individuals and have to be for the other reason that I already assigned, that their jobs are incredibly – their jobs to a person uh, are incredibly important to the operation of the ship. Uh, would you agree with those statements? Uh, yes, I would. I think the emphasis on the, the submarine is that um, space is at such a premium. Everybody's there for a reason. And so if somebody isn't doing their job, it's almost Im- – it's you know, somebody has to cover for them, but you really don't have the people to cover for them. So you really can't do that for very long. So uh, the enlisted people go and the officers both go through uh, the academic schools they have to do to learn the equipment that they're doing. And they go to submarine school to learn general submarining. And some of the time they get to where – to the submarine, most of the time they're uh, pretty well, and there are very few people that get weeded out once they get to a submarine. Um, one thing that's true, though, is that everybody on submarine has to go through and get qualified in submarines and wear their dolphins. That's a process that takes anywhere from 9 to 12 months for an enlisted person and probably 11 to 15 months for an officer. Hmm. 
And that means that they really know their submarine very well. They know all of the emergency procedures and all of the compartments and all the equipment and how to operate that. Um, but one of the things about being in the submarine, even the lowest submariner, if they don't do what their job and do it right, they have the ability to put the ship in danger. Right. And so that trust and that uh, dependence on people um, – if people aren't up to the standard, the whole crew will the whole crew will work very hard to get them up to that standard. But if they aren't willing to work and if they don't have the ability, it's pretty much a consensus that the, they will need to go. So that, that rarely happens that somebody gets all the way through all the training and gets there. But um, you, you depend you literally depend on everybody else on that ship, right? Right. Uh, after some uh, training in nuclear reactors and uh, uh, submarine uh, uh, training as well, you were assigned uh, to the USS Puffer, a Sturgeon-class attack sub. Uh, what was your role on board the Puffer? Uh, well, initially I got there, I was the uh, reactor controls officer, and then um, they fleeted me up pretty quickly to be the weapons officer. At that point in time, we were expanding the submarine fi uh, fleet, uh, a lot. That was in the early 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, so th uh, the weapons officers normally department head job, which is a second sea tour on a submarine, okay. but they didn't have enough uh, bodies. And so they would fleet up some body from a first tour to be the weapons officer. So uh, since I, I was a little older and had more experience, at least in life, if not in submarines, they fleeted me up to be the, be the weapons officer uh, pretty quickly. What were the weapons that you were learning? Uh, the weapons we carried at that point were the Mark 48 torpedo. I think we still had a Mark 37 torpedo. Uh, we had uh, the Harpoon anti-ship cruise missile, which could be shot from the torpedo tubes. And at that point, we were also subrock capable, which was basically a uh, missile that went out and dropped the nuclear depth bomb. What so, was the main mission of an attack sub in the 1980s? Uh, the main mission of the attack subs was to go out and win the next war. Uh, so most of the time we were spent training to go off and exact, uh, do that kind of mission. Uh, it, that mission kind of depended on, varied on where you were in the wor world and so forth. And so um, we sort of had a war plan. That There was a war plan and you had directions. And so we do kind of what we needed to be doing. Um, the other thing that the attack subs did was they were a lot of times assigned intelligence uh, gathering uh, missions. What kind of intelligence are they gathering? Well, the, the, the submarine is that people don't know where it is and what it's got. And you've got mass and antennas, and you can uh, stick an antenna up and get communications and uh, uh, rate, uh, radar signals and so forth because you're so small. And so most of it's that kind of intelligence gathering. Okay. Uh, what's a typical day aboard a attack sub like? So uh, uh, all submarines at that point were doing 18-hour days. Uh, the watch stations, you were one in three, uh, which meant that you were on watch for six hours. You basically, you would eat a meal, go on and watch for six hours, get off. After that, you would go off and do either your work on your quals for the next watch station up that you needed to be qualifying on, uh, do training, and then get about six hours of sleep, and that's an 18-hour day. 
some lucky people sometimes might have a six, uh, one in four. They would be on watch for six and off for uh, then uh, 18. But um, since I was on subs, they really figured out that the 18-hour day isn't very good for you. You really go into a big sleep deficit thing, and then you go take a really long sleep and catch up and so forth. And so the Naval undersea uh, medical community and the rest of the Navy medical community has figured out that that's not good for the body. And so they work now hard to keep it on uh, where you're on uh, a 24-hour day cycle instead of an 18-hour day cycle. But most of the time with you, you're on watch, you were qualifying for your next watch station, you were training, Uh, we did all-hand drills, you did drills, got everybody up, that also interrupted your sleep also right, sure. makes it hard and then sleep so most of the time you were very busy um one time i came home from a three-week op and my wife hadn't been married too long and my wife uh, said oh i really missed you and i was not very smart <laughs> and i said oh wow i was so busy i hardly had time to think of you <laughs> didn't go over very well probably not uh, <laughs> submarines how how long are they at sea at any given time on average? Uh, the limit on the submarines is food. And uh, sometimes the submarine operations, you're on a place uh, where you have to get relieved and somebody has to be there. And if some, some mechanical problem happens, breakdown or something. And so some people have had, uh, we always went to see if uh, with 90 days worth of food, and normally you'd expect to be out for no more than about 60 or 70 and you had 90 i think the records like 110 and they were rationing food when they got back in kind of interesting puffer became uh, uh kind of uh, a celebrity submarine within the navy uh, after your time there of course prior to the filming of the movie the hunt for red october actor sean connery was on board preparing for his role uh, in that film, he was given the honorary status of a Navy commander and was allowed, while the ship's captain was next to him, to give orders while the ship was underway. Uh, after your time on Puffer, you transferred to USS Seahorse, another Sturgeon-class attack sub, uh, this time as navigator and operations officer. Describe those roles. Uh, the navigator and ops officer is really uh, concerned about uh, the operation of the ship and uh, where the ship is in the world or maybe in a channel coming in uh, in and out of port and all the operations it does. Um, I had had an awful lot of engineering experience at Naval Reactors, so I wanted to uh, be a little more focused on the uh, submarine operational side of things to sort of round out that uh, experience. Sure. Um, I, I had the great honor of being part of the inactivation ceremony of the USS James K. Pope, which was a ballistic mi- missile submarine back in 1999. And I remember the the officer that was taking us on the tour of the boat mentioned a, a new technology. Couldn't go into a great amount of detail, but it was GPS that he could tell the, the where the submarine was any place in the world within – uh, a few hundred yards. And uh, of course, now everybody has a GPS that's of higher caliber in our own pockets than, than the Poke had back in 1999, probably. Um, fascinating to me how much technology has changed. But uh, I'm assuming you weren't using GPS as a navigation officer. Uh, GPS didn't exist at that time. Right. And uh, we had a really... Uh, advanced uh, satellite navigation system. Um, 
and they were called NAVSAT things, and they were really expensive technology, and um, it, it, you had to uh, – GPS has all these satellites up all the time, and you know, there's like, you know, you get from three to five satellites all the time. Uh, this one, we would we would calculate. Oh, when's the pass going to be up? We got to go to periscope depth and stick up an antenna and pick that up. And that was such a, that was a great advance in technology. Before that, things could get a little dicey sometimes on where the submarine was. Uh, there were older radar radio wave based. Uh, from shore things, but that didn't work when you were out at sea. And uh, navigation for all of the Navy ships was uh, has been a challenge, um, all, has always been a challenge. And it's I was on the cusp of where electronics was making life a lot easier, and now it's almost to the point where it's uh, too easy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem is what ha- – uh, and I'm assuming that they still train to how are you going to be able to navigate when the if the satellites aren't working? Right, right. Uh, have they lost the ability? Do you think, or are they lose? Are submariners or any uh, navy personnel losing the ability to be able to the o- old ways of doing navigation? Uh, I'm pretty sure that they're still uh, learning. When we were out and we had these electronic means of navigation, uh, we still took and went out and practiced uh, navigating with sextants and charts and getting uh, satellite fixes by shooting the stars. Um, So I'm assuming that they're still uh, practicing at least the rudimentary ability to do that if they have to, if something uh, goes wrong with the electronic systems. We need to take our second break. When we come back, we're going to learn about ballistic missile submarines with Commander Ron Ladd, United States Navy retired. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hoods for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. 
The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm Tom Price. Today we're speaking with Commander Ron Ladd, United States Navy retired, about his very interesting career in the submarine service. In 1985, Ron, you changed focus a bit and transferred from attack subs to ballistic missile subs. You were assigned as Gold Crew Executive Officer aboard USS Francis Scott Key. Uh, the key is best remembered for conducting the first submerged launch of a Trident missile in 1979. She also became the first submarine to go on deterrent patrol with Trident 1 missiles. Describe the purpose of a ballistic missile sub, uh, and how is it different from an attack sub? The purpose of the ballistic missile sub is to be ready to launch uh, the package of ballistic missiles that are on board to deliver nuclear weapons as part of the nuclear weapons uh, triad that consists of the uh, Air Force bombers and the land-based uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles and then the submarine-launched ballistic missiles. The submarine-launched missiles are the most survivable uh, because nobody knows where they are. The uh, planes, the, they're susceptible to radar. The land-based uh, missiles, you know, where the launchers are, so they could be taken out perhaps in a first strike. But, uh, but then the submarine uh, missiles would be left over and deliver the uh, strike that would basically take out the uh, enemy. And therefore, that'll deter the enemy from ever making that first strike. That was their purpose in life. And so keep them at sea, undetected, ready to launch all the time. Um, are they out for a longer period? Is the cruise time frame longer than an attack vessel? Um, go back to food again. Food again. <laughs> Uh, so the patrols were normally 70 days long, uh, port to port. And uh, sometimes uh, I was, I think, the longest we were ever out because, again, our relief <laughs> had problems and so forth. Or actually, I, we, got, we got underway early because there were problems with some of the other subs. And I think the longest we were ever out was 85. 85 days. How many days were you submerged? All of them. All of them. Uh, you go out to port, and uh, depending upon how shallow the water is, uh, you could, you're always submerging the day you leave port, and uh, you surface the day you come back. What was the deepest you ever dived? Um, the deepest I ever dove was uh, to a test depth on uh, some, after we were testing some repairs and so forth, we go to test depth. Uh, but that was not normally we would go that deep. Uh, two crews, a blue crew and a gold crew, because they're rotating these submarines uh, pretty rapidly. Uh, the goal is to keep them out at sea as much as possible uh, to, uh, so you can use those same missiles out at sea as part of the deterrent. And with two crews, you can do that. If you only had one crew, you'd only be, you'd be out at sea at probably less than half of what they are. You are the executive officer. What's the role of the XO? The XO is to make sure everything works, and to, uh, the other thing is to make sure everybody's trained up and that the crew is trained. And uh, when I say trained, it's really trained to be able to handle any casualty and be able to execute the war mission and to make sure that people get trained so that we've got people qualified to man all the watch stations and to keep the submarine going. Uh, talk about training. Uh, the, the most 
biggest focus on training was casualty drills, and the biggest thing that we focused on was fire and flooding drills because those are the things that can uh, take out the submarine. It also makes you second in command. Is that correct? Yes. The XO? Yes. It's a lot of responsibility. Um, yes, and, and with the ballistic missile submarines, um, there are certain defined roles uh, in the way that uh, when missiles are fired. And um, in that role, you have uh, specific things you have to do. One of the things is that the messages, if a launch message were to come in, it's got to be verified by two different officers, and that's got to be supervised by the executive officer and the executive officers. Uh, also making sure that the all the other department uh, heads are doing their specific jobs to make sure that that launch goes off without a hitch. What's it feel like to launch a ballistic missile while on a submarine submerged? A little bit of a jolt. That's it. You have um, a giant rocket shooting vertically out of a submarine underwater, and it's a little jolt. So the submarine doesn't the, the missile does not launch out of the submarine. The missile is ejected from the submarine. Uh, there's basically this uh, rocket motor that lights off uh, a big thing of water that puts a whole bunch of steam underneath. The hatch opens and it blows through the cover. And so the uh, rocket and the missile does not launch until it's away from the submarine. Okay. So what you're feeling is this uh, expelling of the missile and then rush of water, and it's, so it's a it's a jolt. It's not that uh, it's not that exciting. <laughs> it's not near as exciting as when the missile breaks the surface and the rocket motors launch. Sure. Which is the part you never got to see. <clears throat> yeah, but my wife did actually. Oh, is that right? Yeah, we, we we did a test firing missile when I was on the key coming out of that uh, overhaul where we had to recertify the whole weapon systems, and part of that's launch a test missile. And so she was able to get out on the uh, observation ship that uh, did that. It was off of Port Canaveral using their, the, the missile range there, or there's, the, the there's rocket some, range there. There's some great photographs of that. Uh, it is exciting, exciting to watch uh, the video of, of that taking place. After three years aboard the key, you attended prospective commanding officer courses uh, and you were given your very first command aboard the USS John C. Calhoun uh, Blue Crew, operating out of Kings Bay, Georgia, and conducting off-crew training in Charleston, South Carolina. Describe the feeling of getting your command. Uh, mostly responsibility. You're responsible for making sure that everybody's safe and that the mission is accomplished. And making sure that uh, the people, everybody gets back, everybody gets home safe and that the mission gets accomplished. So it's a responsibility. Some people look upon the uh, privilege that you may have and the deference that people may give to you, but uh, I don't think those people do as good a job. It's really the responsibility that you've got. And it's also that uh, making sure that everybody's really trained and they know what they have to do and that you're confident that they can do it because you're basically qualifying people to stand watches and uh, you have to have the confidence that they can actually do that. So there's an awful lot of uh, training and working with people to make sure that everything works. You're pretty successful on the training side of things. Go ahead and brag for a minute because uh, you had some uh, qualification scores that are pretty, pretty impressive. Um, yeah, we had a... Um, a uh, excellent in an operational reactor safeguards exam. The uh, basically there are two big exams. One of them is operating the 
whole engineering plan, but it focuses on reactor safety and also the ability to handle uh, any kind of engineering casualties, flooding and fires and so forth, And because that's where we've had problems on submarines is floodings and fires. Um, and we went into some really very realistic training to the point of the fact that you cover everybody's uh, air-breathing masks with total smoke, and you have to be able to fight a fire without being able to see anything. You have to know where to go and find the firefighting equipment and being able to find the hoses and uh, be able to find the fire and put it out really without being able to see very much. Hmm. Um, so uh, anyway, we got an excellent on that, which is about less than 5% of the exams ever get an excellent. Then the other exam is the uh, tactical readiness evaluation. It's really, are you able to fight the ship and be able to handle casualties in the rest of the plant? And we also got an excellent on that, actually one of only uh, three in the, about three or four years in the whole Atlantic fleet on that. You, you mentioned responsibility and obviously took that that very seriously. One of the greatest amounts of responsibility has to come with the staggering amount of firepower that you had at your disposal. Talk for a minute about what that meant aboard the Calhoun. How many missiles were you able to, would you be able to launch if you had to? And what did that translate to in terms of actual firepower? Uh, it was 16 missiles, but each missile was uh, had multiple independent re, uh, reentry vehicles. Uh, so you were able to uh, be able to execute an awful lot of the str the the uh, strategic commands uh, plan uh, war plans. Um, we really didn't think too much about that. That was our mission, but we were more worried about the more mundane things, making sure the submarine's safe, making sure we can execute the mission. But, uh, you know, we, we practiced launches all the time, and we would get them unannounced, and all the data would get recorded, and it would get analyzed. So we were tested a lot all the time. And so uh, in our mind, if we ever got a launch order, we were just going to be doing the same thing we'd been doing in all of our drills. And, th and that's the way you want it to be. You want to rely on your training not have to worry and think about things at the time. Same way we would respond to a fire, same way we would respond to a flooding. America's greatest threat in the time period in which you commanded the Calhoun, of course, was the Soviet Union. We're sort of at the end of the, the Soviet period in, in history. Did you ever have a run-in with the Soviets? Did you ever detect Soviet submarines? Uh, not while I was on uh, the missile subs because we were out in operating areas and one of the nice things about the missile subs is the missiles got longer ranges, and so the operating areas, uh, initially we had forward bases when we had the Polaris and the Poseidon missiles operating out of Scotland and Guam and out of Spain. But by the time I was on the subs, we were operating, the subs were out of uh, Washington State and out of Kings Bay, Georgia, so we were out in the big Atlantic Ocean, and in that time frame, the Soviets weren't putting out as many uh, ships into the Atlantic in that time frame as they had been earlier. Hmm. Um, you spent about three years on Calhoun uh, and then uh, went and worked with Trident Missiles for a time, that that program, is uh, that correct? Tomahawk. Tomahawk, I'm sorry, Tomahawk Missiles. Yes. Uh, after that, why, why uh, is that just uh, the normal rotation in the Navy? That uh, no, uh, I was... Uh, on sort of an experimental program there to be a uh, what they called a material professional, there was a lot of concern about the uh, equipment that was coming to the Navy 
and that they didn't have enough operational input. And so the plan was to put, take people that had operational Navy experience and put them in the acquisition for weapon systems. And so since uh, Tomahawk's uh, launched by submarines, uh, that's where I went to that tour. Uh, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, uh, I would have thought I would have gone into the systems that are used to launch Tomahawk missiles, but instead the uh, Admiral, when I got there said, oh, you've got all this, uh, uh, test, you've got all this experience here. We're going to put you in charge of testing all the whole system from, uh, uh, the whole missile system, including the missile, the surface ship launch systems, and the uh, planning systems that are on the surface ships and the submarines and test all of that. So that's what I ended up doing most of my time. Retired from the Navy and then 21 more years with Raytheon, uh, working on on systems with them, and then retired from there and you came back to Tennessee. Yes, it was always uh, the plan to come back and live on the farm where I grew up. Do you miss the sea? No. You don't? <laughs> Not at all. Prefer to be at the farm in Tennessee? Well, at this point in time, uh, but I've been out of the Navy for 21 years. And the, the thing that you talk to people in most of the military, it's the people and the camaraderie you might miss. Uh, being at sea and being away from home and being away from the advantages of living in a prosperous society and so forth. Uh, yeah, I'll take that over uh, being at sea and, <laughs> and waking up. And there are all these things that you'll see on Facebook. Yeah, if you miss the Navy, uh, get up in the middle of the night and uh, get wet and uh, go off and do some things that, and then go back to sleep. And it, it, it's, a, it's a hard life, and it's not probably one I could uh, do at, at uh, my age now like I could when I was much younger. Commander Ron Ladd, thank you for sharing your story with us, and thank you for your service to our country. We end today's episode with a quote from Admiral Hyman Rickover. Good ideas are not adopted automatically. They must be driven into practice with courageous impatience. You can now hear all of our History Soak episodes online at frontporchradiotn.com and wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week, won't you, as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen, meat, and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. 
I'm a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, memsmodernlandscape.com. That's memsmodernlandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Saturday, June 10th, South Music presents J.D. Darling. Now I'm punch drunk, love struck, shook up, baby. Live at the Mule House in beautiful downtown Columbia, Tennessee. She's from a small town. Celebrating the release of J.D.'s new album, Looking Forward, Thinking Back, with special guest Scout Spear. Tickets available at themulehouse.com or listen here to win. J.D. Darling, live at the Mule House. Brought to you by South Music DIY Dumpsters and Dixieland Management. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO, grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee. 